0: Next thing I want to do is just take a minute to let's just uh, connect with God. Let's find, uh, just come back to that place of worship. So join me in prayer, Lord. We invite you here. We know you desire to be in relationship with us, and so we we invite you to come and make yourself known to us. We wait on you. It's all anxiety, all busyness, let that just evaporate. Let the weight of the week just fall off of you. So that we can receive from you, Lord. Thank you that you have something for each person here. Amen. So it's a real privilege to get to share with you guys today. I, uh, there's been something that's been on my heart for over a year, and if you've spent any time either in my faith group or in um, the young adult ministry or just around me, you've probably heard bits and pieces of this, so um, hopefully it won't sound like something completely new to many of you. Um, But that is that I've come to a place of thinking that there's three ways to live life, and I want to talk about each one um, today and describe particularly the difference between second two. So we'll we'll get into that in a minute. Um, But before doing that, I just want to give you a little context for where I'm coming from before we go into this, so you know kind of how I got to this place, how I approached it. So I grew up with two Christian parents, which is a real blessing, and um, started following Jesus at the age of six or or something like that, some young age, and really grew up in the church, uh, connected to the church, trying, leading Bible studies, you know, trying to obey God and do what he had said. And um, there's two things about that, other than that, there's two things that really characterized my um, life up through college. And that was, I was really into sports. Do you have any athletes out there? And I was r- really into school. Um, so I was kind of Those two things were big things. I I loved studying. I loved reading. Uh, That consumed a lot of my life. Um, In fact, probably more than it should have growing up. And so then I went to college and was in a really intellectual environment on one hand and also on the football team on the other hand, which, yes, they can combine, but oftentimes there's a little bit of distance there. Um, And so that was my college experience of being challenged intellectually um, but also being part of this active um, group of, of leaders on the football team who went after it. Um, and then I've, I've spent the last few years in Boston as a consultant for nonprofits. Do we have any consultants out there? All right. So hopefully you guys will enjoy some of today's presentation because as um, many consultants do, we use PowerPoint slides to uh, to present our work. And so you'll see a number of them up here today um, So you'll have to give me some feedback on that at the end. Uh, But that's where I've kind of come to this. And uh, I want to talk about three different ways of living life. The first one, and the first one is without God. It's a godless life. It's saying, and and each of these are defined by one question, which we'll get into as we go. But the first one is a godless life. If you see up here on the screen, that's the... The, uh, the logo for humanism. And so it's really um, you saying, okay, what do I want to do? The next way of life is saying, okay, I want to live life with God, um, but I want to live it in a principle-based way. And so you see the Ten Commandments up there. Most of my life, so 20-plus years, I only knew about these two ways of life. And you might be sitting there saying, that sounds true to me, too. I only know about these two. Um, today, I want to introduce to you, um, either for the first time or again, a third way. And this is what I like to call a presence-based way of life. You'll see that up there. The dove, um, as you may have picked up on, represents a spirit. And so that will be a big component of that. So again, the, it was just in the last two years or so that I was introduced to the presence-based life. Um, And so today what I want to do is talk a little bit about the first one and then break down what is the difference between a principle-based way of life and a presence-based way of life. And as if you've heard me up here uh, doing response, you know that I've said Christianity is not a spectator sport. And so I want to get you guys involved. Um, So expect to be standing up um, throughout this. And um, also I just encourage you to take notes. One, because I've spent years again living in those first two and it was only recently that this emerged as an insight and so i think there's something really interesting here that can come through the other thing is that if you guys are like yeah i know this already what i would want for you guys is to be able to ingest it in such a way that you can teach it to the next person on the street that when you leave today you can transfer this to someone else so if it's drawing pictures you'll see that we have some up there that's great draw but take some notes um so you can take this with you. So the godless life, defined by one question, what do I want to do? And that's not always necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes we say, I want to help people. I feel like there's something about uh, doing good for others. But what it's really rooted in is what do you think is best? And I only really see two reasons why you would want to live a godless life. one, You don't believe God is real. So if there is no God, then of course it would make sense to live a godless life. The other reason, number two, is that you don't believe that God is loving, good, and or powerful. And so you you might think there is a God, but he's, he's really nasty, or he's not worth associating with. And so there's two ways to figure out the answer to those two questions. One is through intellectual investigation. So you can read a bunch of books, you can talk to experts, as I actually did a lot of in college, because that was what was, um, that was a big part of college, is understanding the intellectual arguments for God, against God. Um, And so that's one way to do it, as you'll see up here. But what I found is that in talking with a number of people, both in the country and around the world, is that what often separates people from God is not so much intellectual arguments, but experiences. And so maybe you had a friend pass away um, when you were a teenager and you think that God was to blame for that. And so you're not even going to consider approaching God. And so I find that there's often experiences that are separating from uh, us from God. And so intellectual investigation won't help you get past that obstacle. And so what I want to encourage you today to, is if you're in this place of living a godless life, that you would combine intellectual investigation with pursuing an experience of God. And that's actually what Jesus encourages us to do as well. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever would open to me, I'll come in and eat with him. And so Jesus is saying, I want to engage you. I want to show you who I am. I want to have a relationship with you. And so actually, I just want to take a minute right now, because for anyone who is in that place, just to invite God right now, All you have to do is say, God, show me if you're real. Show me if you're good. And I want to give him the opportunity to begin to reveal that to you, even as we continue to talk. So let's just open our hands to him for a minute. Lord, I thank you that you have demonstrated in my life that you are good, that you are loving, and that you are powerful. And I ask that you would just enter into the lives of each person here and show them that into those experiences where they have seen you as being at fault, into those experiences where they have seen you as being evil, as having bad intentions. Lord, I invite you into those right now. Amen. If you're in that place, I encourage you just to stay there. Allow God to minister to you over the course of uh, this morning. So that's the godless life. There's, it's, what do I want to do? The principle-based life is defined by another question. You may, have ha- you may even have a bracelet on that has that question. It's, what would Jesus do? And so, I'm seeing uh, some, some nods out there. Um, this is a question that says, okay, Jesus acted a certain way in the past, or God has advised us to act in a certain way through his laws and his principles, So now I'm going to take what he has said and what he has done and I'm going to try to translate that into my life. So I have a decision I'm going to work tomorrow and I need to know whether I spend, um, whether I do something as simple as uh, bring my lunch or go out for lunch with some of my friends. What would Jesus do, right? That's the question we've been taught to ask. And so um, this way of life began in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Um, And they, what I I want us to get today is that God did not intend for us to live a principle-based life. How do we know that? If we look in, the principle-based life requires a lot of rules. Because you think about the number of situations that you have in your life. You need a lot of principles to be able to determine, what do I do here? What do I do now? Because there's so many different things that are happening. How many rules did God give Adam and Eve? Just one, right? Don't eat from this one tree. And so God didn't intend for a principle-based life because He didn't give them enough principles to live a principle-based life. But they make a decision early on. And why don't we stand as we as we read this? I want you guys to to grab this um, this passage in Genesis three. And let me just give you a bit of context um, before diving in. So this is Satan has come to Eve and asked her about what God said he couldn't do, said she couldn't do. And she said that we can't eat of this fruit. And so this is how he responds. He says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All right, you guys can have a seat. So there are two trees in the garden, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This represented the decision between a principle-based life and a presence-based life. The tree of life, Jesus said, I am the life. So consuming from the tree of life was consuming the life of God into them so that they could depend, be dependent on God's life in them. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as we see here, what what does Satan say it is? He says, it allows you to be like God, knowing good and evil. So eating from that allowed them to make distinctions, make their own distinctions of what I think is right and what I think is wrong and begin to build a set of principles, right? And what is the first thing that Adam and Eve do after they eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil? They determine that something is wrong, that they had no idea of being wrong before that, right? They all of a sudden realize, oh, we're naked, this is bad, we need to do something about this. And so the first thing that happens is that they develop a principle around nudity being wrong. Maybe not a bad one, um, but... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was was a decision to step into a principle-based way of living. Now, God, who again didn't design life to be in principle-based, to be principle-based, is always trying to bring us back into relationship with Him. So we see He goes and He 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 um, brings a people to Himself, the Israelites, and He assigns a leader, Moses, to bring them out of slavery and to be his people who he would walk in relationship with. However, they make a fateful decision to go back into a principle-based way of life. So let's stand and read um, this encounter. This is God coming to them, and he's saying, I'm gonna, I want to make a covenant with you, a commitment to you to live in relationship. So here, he comes to them on the mountain, and this is how the people respond. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and the smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Great, you guys can have a seat. God came to them, invited them into relationship to hear from them, to speak to them directly. And they, out of fear, say they distance themselves from God. What comes after this? If you've ever read Leviticus, which you might not have because it's a whole bunch of rules, you would know that there's over 600 different rules were developed that governed how the Israelites lived life because of the decision to not live connected to God, but to have a mediator, someone in between them, who would tell them what God um, thought was right. And I think today, as well as back then, there's fear that keeps us from moving into a presence-based way of life. Here, there's fear of encountering God. They see him manifest himself in a very odd way, right? I think I would probably be afraid as well. Um, You know, lightning, smoke, a loud, thunderous voice... Um, But fear caused them to recede into a principle-based way of life. And so I encourage you that as you think about what might be keeping you from following rules rather than living out of relationship, to look for a place of fear. Is there something uh, that you don't trust about stepping into a place of relying on God? This way of life, the principle-based way of life, is not all bad. It might sound that way at this point. You might be feeling, oh man, I'm discouraged. Um, What have I been doing? You know. um, But we see also following this example in the Old Testament that God says, here are all the rules. If you follow these, you will be blessed. If you don't follow these, you will be cursed. Right? And so following the principles of God do result in blessing. He blesses that. But... What we find, and as Moses, the leader, said, it's not about principles, it's about God's presence. God's presence is what distinguishes us from all other people. Anyone can follow a set of rules and not have a God who's infusing them, empowering them to live that out. And so, while principle-based life is not what we are created for, principles are not all bad. Uh, you can still keep your, your set of rules and have them to, be, to underline, set the boundaries for where God moves you within, um, within activities. This way of life did not stop in the Old Testament. So we see that this continued in through the New Testament where Jesus began to push against it. And so one example of this is Jesus is having dinner with Simon the leper, his disciples, and probably some other people. When a woman comes in and pours perfume... That's worth a year's worth of wages over his feet and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Let's uh, pick up that story here, if you guys can stand up and join me for this. It says, When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price in the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She, is not, she has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You guys can have a seat. This story might have you asking questions, right? Does Jesus care about the poor? If you do read the, the entire Bible, if you see Jesus' actions, we know that he cared for the the least of these, right? He says, whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. So we know that that's not what's going on here. The disciples were operating out of a principle that said, if we have a resource that can be used to, to serve the poor, it should be. This is a good principle. I don't think any of us would disagree with that, right? But when we operate out of principles, we can miss god's agenda in a moment and god's agenda was something else here he wanted to prepare jesus for his burial why was this necessary well we would see that if we look at jesus's death and resurrection that when he died a bunch of women after the sabbath brought spices to prepare him for his his full burial and went to his tomb what happened when they got to the tomb he was already gone right And so they didn't have an opportunity to prepare him for his burial, and so this was actually necessary to prepare him. And so God's agenda in this moment, he knew something that they had no way of knowing, and so they were operating out of limited information, which is what we have to do when we operate out of principles. And so what we see here is that the principle-based life, while not horrible, is dangerous for two reasons. One, it allows us to live out of relationship with God. You can do the principle-based life, more or less, without God, without a connection to him. The other thing, it takes a world that is full of many shades of gray and tries to make it black and white. You have perfume. Give it to the poor. Right? So those two things make the principle of life insufficient in in the calling that God has put on our lives. So let's now take a look at presence-based life. The godless life, remember, was asking one question, what do I want to do? The principle based life is asking another question, what would Jesus do? So the presence-based life is asking a slightly different question. It's, what is Jesus doing? So rather than looking back and trying to interpret that to apply it to your present situations, it's asking, what is God doing in the moment, and then how do I partner with that? I want to look at one story of Jesus um, that demonstrates how he did things a bit different than we would. So you guys can stand for this one. This one's a little bit longer. So Hope you guys still have enough energy. Um, So here we go. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. All right, you guys can take a seat. So I've bolded a number of things, and if we go back to the the first section of that verse, um, I've bolded a number of things that strike me as odd. First, Jesus goes to a place where there's a number of disabled people. You know, imagine going into a hospital. And what does he do? He picks one person to approach and minister healing to. Why did Jesus pick that one person? We see in other examples, crowds came to him, and it says that he healed everyone who came to him. So what is Jesus doing? Why does he go to this one person? If he's going to go where there's so many disabled people, should he heal them all? Is, it, is this favoritism? What's going on here? The next thing that strikes me as strange is, he, goes, he says to them, do you want to get well? In any church that I've been to, I can't imagine that ministry training would tell you when you encounter someone who's sick, ask them, do you want to get well? as the first question. Why does Jesus ask that question? I think we get some insight into that in how the man responds. How does the man respond? He excuses his behavior as if he is at fault for his own disability. Right? He says, I haven't been able to get into the pool. And so what we know about this pool is that there it was said that The angels would stir the pool, and when it was stirred, the water, if you got into the pool, the first person into the pool would be healed. And so what he's saying here is, I haven't been able to get into it. I'm not at fault for my own disability. And so what is Jesus doing? He's exposing emotional pain in this man's life so that he can then, in the next sentence, say, get up, pick up your mat and walk. So he can say, you're right. You weren't at fault, and so I'm not blaming you for your disability. I'm going to administer healing in the place of that and show you that I am sufficient. And so what Jesus did is not only bring healing to his physical body, but he ministered to his emotional uh, pain. So again, a strange question, but Jesus knew something else was going on. The next thing that Jesus does that's strange on on slide two here, is he says, pick up your mat and walk. We know from the stories that Jesus healed in a number of different ways. So why does he say, pick up your mat? When we read later in the story that picking up your mat on the Sabbath was against the law. And so he's telling the man who he's healing to disobey the laws of the day. Jesus had another agenda that he was operating out of. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done something like this, right? Right? Finally, if we go to the, the end of the verse there, it says, The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away. Again, if I, if I go back to how churches teach people to minister to others, how often would they tell you to go up, pray for someone, don't say your name, don't say you're affiliated with the church, don't tell them about Jesus, don't tell them about gospel, don't tell them that you're a Christian, just pray for them and run, Right? This wouldn't happen. Because we're taught to, okay, bring physical healing and then connect them to community, connect them to Jesus, connect them to the gospel, right? But Jesus doesn't do that here. Fortunately for us, Jesus explains his actions. What was he doing in this moment in a few verses that, uh, that, that follow? And so I'll just read these for you. I'll let you guys sit for this one. Um, but Jesus says, he said to the religious leaders, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. I tell you the truth the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. This explains how Jesus lived life. He says, The father is working, God is doing something. In any moment, We know God is doing something, and he's doing something for your good. And so what does Jesus do? He watches the Father, and he partners with him. He's asking, what is the Father doing, and then partnering with it. This explains the strange things that we would never teach someone to do. This explains the things that might seem offensive, and it actually explains why Jesus and his disciples broke a bunch of the rules of the day. So I made a list of this, um, of some of the rules that Jesus broke. He healed people on the Sabbath multiple times, as we just saw. Um, His disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. That was a no-no. He walked through Samaria and talked with a Samarian woman. Again, a cultural taboo. He touched a leper, which would have made him unclean. He touched dead people, which would have made him unclean. His disciples didn't wash their hands before eating, while also breaking the rules. Seems kind of strange anyway. Um, And his disciples didn't fast. So Jesus broke... The rules of the day, because he was operating out of a different agenda. He knew, on one hand, what were God-given principles, and he knew the appropriate interpretation and application of them, because he was able to see what God was doing in the moment. I want to give you a few other examples of what presence-based living looks like. One actually comes from the Old Testament, and is a very visual example. So, the Israelites, when they were walking with God in the desert, were guided by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. When the pillar or the cloud moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. This was an illustration, a foreshadowing of how God intended life to be lived. A picture of watching God's spirit move and moving with him. Another example comes from CFCF a few weeks ago. You might remember that Jeff got up to preach a sermon, like he always does. And in our principles, in our schedule, in our structure, the way things work is that you preach your sermon and then you do ministry time. But Jeff felt like God was doing something different that morning. And so he said, we feel like God wants to heal people who have back pain. And right there, people raised their hand. We were able to pray for them. And so this was just another demonstration of living principle... Presence-based life, seeing what God's doing, partnering with Him. So this can happen in the church. It can happen outside the church. One example I'll give you is from my own life. Um, one day I was leaving work, and uh, we had um, we were having people over for dinner, and um, we also had a happy hour at work. And my principal said I should go to the happy hour, build relationships, build community connect with my coworkers. workers um, I'll just stop in for 15 minutes and then I'll go home and get there just in time for dinner. As I was walking over to where the happy hour was, I just felt this impression of, you should go home, don't go to the happy hour. And I was like, God, this doesn't make sense. I should be building relationships. I should be connecting with people at work. And I felt like, again, an- another impression, don't go to the happy hour, go home. So I was like, okay doesn't make sense, right? doesn't follow our logical thinking necessarily. But I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go with this. Um, I go home and find that Cassie had had a busy day. Her schedule had gotten thrown off, and she hadn't had time to prepare for the dinner that we were having that night. And so I was able to then help her, and we were able to get done in time. So this is just a small example. And the, and the thing is, like, presence-based living affects the small examples and the big examples of, that you have in your life. Um, another example I'll give you is that in faith group a few weeks ago, we prayed and asked God before going to faith group, okay, what, what do we want to do during uh, this night? And we, we felt like we were, you know, have a have welcome and then and talk about and have a discussion and then move into worship and prayer. You know, pretty similar to, I imagine, what most of you do. We prayed in the beginning, just gave some time for um, people to connect with God and felt like a few people had something on their heart to share. And so a few people shared, and we felt like there was a need to, to um, minister God's peace and rest before having the discussion. And so we felt God leading us in that way, so we just switched the order. We started, went right into the worship and prayer, and then went back to the discussion afterwards. And so again, these are just simple examples, but it. It's showing how life can be different if we're living out of God's agenda versus our own, or versus what we have interpreted from the principles. So how do you live a presence-based life? I want to show you how it can infuse all parts of your life through three different phases. And it's not that this process will be built into every step or every action of your life— But as you think about life, begin to think about how you can incorporate these. So the first one is spirit-informed planning. So this is asking God, what do you want to do at faith group? What do you want to do at work tomorrow? How should I set my schedule um, tomorrow in class or next year in class? So it's asking God beforehand what he wants to do and getting a sense for that. Once you've done that, the next step is spirit-sensitive action. And so this is when you're actually in the moment. You have a spirit-informed plan, but you're flexible. You allow God to move you. You're sensitive to what he's doing, so you can change your agenda. You can change uh, what you're planning on. And you let him move you in the moment. Finally, it's important that we process things after with God to understand what he was doing. So spirit-directed processing. Allowing God to show you, okay, this is what I was doing. This worked well. This is where I was. This is where you can uh, catch me next time. Or where I was doing something slightly different. Because our evaluation of how things went, if informed by our own minds only, will cause us to begin to set a series of patterns and habits in our lives. In each of these phases, there's three things that you can do. One is acknowledge God. So turn your attention to him. Next, ask him, what is Jesus doing? Or what are you doing, Jesus, right? Um, Ask, and then partner. Those three things. Turn your attention, acknowledge, ask, and partner. And you can do that beforehand, you can do that in the moment, and you can do that after. So I want to give us an opportunity to practice this today. Um, But before doing that, I just want to take a minute and ask you a question of, as you think about that spectrum The arrow going across the screen before. Where do you fall on that? And as you think about where you are, what I'd encourage you to do, if you're in that godless boat, on the godless side on the left side of the arrow, what I'd encourage you to do is ask God, okay God, show me who you are. If you are real, show it to me. Let me experience it this morning. Let me experience it this week. Combine that with whatever intellectual investigation you're doing. If you're living and you're like, I think I've been living a principle-based life, what I'd encourage you to is to start small. Pick one time during the day, and every day, just stop. It could be when you get up. It could be at lunch. It could be when you go to bed. Stop and ask the question, Jesus, what are you doing? And then just try to go with that. Begin to build that in as a habit. And then finally, if you, if you feel like you're, I've been living a pre- presence-based life, I've been responding to God in the moment, what I'd encourage you to do is just allow it to infuse more and more of your life. So as you do that, as you think about where you are, I wanted to give us an opportunity to practice this this morning. And so what I've done is I've asked four people to share what they've, when they've asked the question this morning, last night, earlier this week, Jesus, what do you want to do on Sunday morning? they're going to share what they felt God leading. The other thing is that I want each of us, as we're here, to ask the same question. So as as those four are coming up and as the band's coming up, I want you just to, to take a minute, and before we share, before we sing, to ask the question of, Jesus, what are you doing right here? He might be saying to you, just sit here and be quiet and rest with me. He might say to you, and when I say, say to you, it might just be an impression, a thought in your head. might be a feeling. Um I say to sing, stand up and sing. He might say, go over to that person over there and ask them how they're doing. Go over to that person over there and pray for them. So let's just take a minute. I'll pray, and then we can take a minute and ask, Jesus, what are you doing? Lord, we thank you that you are always at work. And so we do ask you, Lord, what do you want to do this morning?